Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone interested in growing sales. Are you a business leader looking to take your career to the next level? Are you wondering about maybe what's the difference between a business advisor, a coach, or a mentor? Which is the right fit for you? Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our ebook on advisors, mentors, and coaches. In it, you'll learn exactly what each of those roles is, why it might be valuable to you to work with one of them, and how to find the best fit for you. Be sure to download a copy today. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 213. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and today I am speaking to the CEO of Fusion Event Staffing, which is a company dedicated to providing your next event with the best brand ambassadors possible. She is based in Atlanta and has had a successful 30-year career in sales, sales management, consulting, executive coaching, and she's also a prolific keynote speaker. She formed her own consulting firm in 1999 and over the years has spoken on topics ranging from relational intelligence to selling value. As a little fun fact, she started her career as a professional stage actress, so she knows how to kind of sell a concept and a topic. I think a lot of people could probably benefit from some acting training. Uh, Our guest today is Jane Gentry. Jane, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Elizabeth. I'm happy to be here. Uh, And as I said, we are really happy to have you. And thank you for reading that wonderful bio written by my mother. Uh, it's, uh, Laura on our team. She is the, the queen at writing bios. You have an excellent website um, that, that was able to tell me all about you. Speaking of bios, I know a bio isn't really a real person, and there's probably a lot more about you. So can you share a little bit more about yourself with our listeners? Maybe talk about where, um, where you got the passion for doing what it is that you do, or some of the key steps on the journey to where you are today? Yeah. Um, Well, I would love to tell you that I uh, had a great vision for my life and my career, and I'm just, I'm brilliant, and I followed all the steps, (laughs) and here I am. Um, None of that would be true. I I literally uh, finished grad school and went to Chicago to do theater and, you know, was starving, and uh, like most of my friends, and Mm -hmm. uh, I decided that I was going to get a job for a year and uh, pay down some student loan debt. I put myself through seven years of of college. And so started interviewing for jobs, met a gentleman in the uh, trade show industry who was the head of sales of an organization. He uh, let me interview. He had a technical theater background. Uh, And he said, Jane, sales is is hard. Uh, People aren't always honest with you about why they don't buy from you. You you take a lot of rejection. Uh, And he gave me 15 reasons why I I shouldn't take that job. (laughs) And uh, I said, "Um, Bill, have you ever not sold an exhibit because you are too short or (laughs) you are too cute or you're not cute enough or you sing in the wrong vocal range? And he looked at me and I said, I think I can handle your rejection. Definitely. So that was the beginning of my of my sales career. And 10 or so years later, I was uh, heading up sales for an organization and was diagnosed with the first of three autoimmune diseases. And the doctor said to me, uh, you know, 200 days on the road is not really um, conducive to you having a long life. And I think you just really need to think about your lifestyle. 
So that was the uh, that was the inception of my sales practice in 1999. Um, really, just trying to uh, figure out how to get life balance, and and it was one of those things that was it was just a God thing that pushed me in the right direction uh, because my practice ended up being the perfect marriage of um, what I knew about business, what I'd learned about sales and what I knew as an actor about connecting with people and communicating an idea, communicating with people. And I couldn't have, I, I would never have been smart enough to put all those things together in the way that they ended up uh, in my practice. So I'm really grateful for that. Definitely. I love how you took what could have been a really challenging diagnosis. And I'm sure it was challenging in a lot of ways, but you took something that could have been completely demoralizing. And a lot of people would have just thought, you know, maybe I need to um, really slow down or, or stop working or, or, or make kind of a drastic change. And instead of taking a step back, you really took a step forward into leadership and started something for yourself. And that was was a, a really big leap of faith, but also clearly um, worked out so that you've had such a successful career. Well, and I'm, I was a lot younger then. And so I, if I look back on that, you make it sound like I'm so smart, Elizabeth. But really, if I look back on it, I think, wow, you were either really brave or really dumb. Um, <laughs> I'm, not sure, I'm not sure which one of those things is the truth, but Work out really I well. definitely get that. It's funny. I think about myself and I moved to New York City when I was 22 years old and I just literally sold my car and moved. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a firm plan. And I look at it now and it's been, you know, almost 15 years. And I'm like, I could not do that. I would not just, you know, quit my job and move somewhere right now. <laughs> and the yeah. things that you can do when you're young. It's actually uh, quite a big decision because I had such a fantastic practice and really loved what I, what I was doing. And so for this company to call me out of the blue and ask me to take this new role as CEO, my first response was no, thank you. Um, Definitely. But um, the, the youthfulness of the culture, the opportunity to just grow this business, there were so many things that were interesting to me. And I thought, boy, if I'm going to make a big life change, this is probably the last, uh, the last one I'm going to make in my career. So, um, so, you know, once again, we'll see how that works out, but it feels like a good move. Definitely. Um, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about what it is that Fusion does? Because you guys definitely have um, have a fun company, and uh, I can see why it would have been probably tempting to join. Yeah, it's a lot of young people. Uh, well, from you know, to me anyway, a lot of younger people. Let's say that. So it's a really youthful culture. It's a fun business. We're in experiential marketing. Uh, for people that don't know what that is, experiential marketing uh, could be anything from an event at a store, um, uh, something at a major league uh, sports event, anywhere that a, that a brand is interacting with their customers and they don't have the staff to handle that, we do that. So, uh, for example, we just did a five-city tour in convention centers for the Halo video game. We provided all the staff for those events. 
Um, we just staffed a thousand Walmart stores a couple Saturdays ago for a toy company launching a new toy for the Christmas season. So um, it's a fun it's a fun industry, and uh, the things that we do are really important for brands as they try to find different ways to engage face to face with their customers. Definitely. Uh, that just must be so interesting, the different kinds of things, even just the, the examples that you share. They're so different. Yeah, and it's perfect for me because I, I totally have ADD, which is why my, my consulting practice worked out. You know, one day I'm with Philips Medical, the next day I'm with Mercedes, the next day I'm with Home Depot, you know, so... Uh, it feeds into my need for variety. Definitely. I'm the same. And that's one of the things I love about this podcast, talking to so many different people, uh, different industries and backgrounds um, and on, on different topics, but also in the work that I do in consulting, I just find it's so fascinating learning so many new things. I think um, mm-hmm. a, a lot of us enjoy that. So as I mentioned in the intro, our theme for this month in December is coaching. Yeah. You have a lot of experience with coaching both as an executive coach, and then you've been a sales leader and a consultant and obviously done a lot of coaching there. Mm -hmm. So what have you learned about coaching over the years? Um, You know, what I tell managers is coaching is a couple things. One is coaching is asking, it's not telling. Ah, I love that. One of the biggest traps that sales managers make is that they they want to tell you how to do it or they want to do it uh-huh. and show you how to do it. Right. Uh-huh. Um, coaching is really about asking great questions. And so this is why a lot of salespeople don't make good coaches or good managers for that matter, because, um, it's really those high performing salespeople in the first place that are good at asking questions. And we can talk about, can talk about what that looks like if you're interested. But so the first thing I would say is coaching is really about asking, not about telling. And secondly, as a manager, it's important to understand where you should spend your time coaching and how much time you should spend coaching, right? Uh So great coaches are very intentional in the way they coach. Uh, Great managers are very intentional in the way they divide up their time. So I would say that for a great manager, 50% of your time as a manager should be spent coaching. This isn't what I see in the field. Uh Managers think that they're job is to manage numbers, to manage KPIs, right? By the time you get to those KPIs, it's too late to course correct. Mm -hmm. So what you really should be coaching is behavior, not metrics. We we call those leading and lagging indicators, right? What you want to coach as a manager are the leading indicators of success. What are the behaviors your salespeople should be exhibiting that will get you to those KPIs? How many calls should they be making? What are the kinds of conversations they should be having on those calls? Are they asking the right questions? Are they selling value? These are things you can coach to. Uh, What did you sell this week is not something you can coach to. Does that make sense, Elizabeth? Absolutely. And I see the the exact same thing. Uh, So often you see managers and they're focusing on the pipeline. They're talking about closed deals 
And like you said, it's too late to impact anything. Certainly you need to monitor those reports. But Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the conversations with the team, in terms of where you can make an impact, it's top of funnel. It's prospecting behavior. It's, you know, are they having good plans for the meetings that they have so that they actually have a productive meeting and get out of it what they need to get out of it? What you don't want to do is debrief after every meeting, be like, oh, you could have done that better. It's like, okay. So think about... (laughs) how much you should coach, you should be coaching 50% of the time. 50% of your job should be coaching. 3% of managers really do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a very low percentage, right? What happens if you are coaching 50% of the time? Well, what the research shows is if you are spending your time that way, you are um, getting, your salespeople are getting more qualified opportunities they're getting to the decision maker more, they're selling value more, they're becoming more consultative. And you know, the big one that all sales managers want, they're closing more. So there's a direct correlation to those specific successes and managers who coach 50% of the time. Now, I will say to you that coaching more than 50% of the time doesn't show that much value. There's a diminished return after 50%. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a pretty good number. But then, you know, sales managers say to me, well, when should we coach? Um, a good rule of thumb is probably 15 to 20 minute increments three times a week with your salespeople. Mm-hmm. And then as a group, twice a week. So with those individual salespeople, you should be coaching uh, what I call deal coaching. Yeah. Well, coaching against opportunities. I had somebody ask me the other day about, you know, some sales training they were going to look at. And I said, does it come with coaching? He said, what do you mean? Isn't that coaching? I said, no. <laughs> it's a different word right? for a reason. <laughs> right. So the rubber meets the road at the coaching, not at the training. Training, training is to me like um, I'm a golfer. If I read a book on how to improve my swing, that's about the same as going to training. And and a lot of trainers are, if they hear this, are probably going, no, Jane. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is most training is really just um, dissemination of information, right? You get a little bit of practice in training, but you're not going to change anybody's behavior from even the best training course. It's the coaching and how to apply those concepts to deals where you really change behavior in your sales organization. So deal coaching, what are the opportunities that we're working on? Um, Skill coaching, what are the things from that training that we need to be reinforcing on a regular basis to change behavior? Uh, Call coaching recording good calls and bad calls of your sales team and walking them through, not the whole call, but there's there's some great technology where you can record these calls mm-hmm. and for them, right? So we can walk together through, boy, that was really great how you didn't skip past that, that cue that the customer gave that they were uncomfortable. Let's talk about why you did that. Let's talk about what what it is about that that caused you to pause there. Or the opposite might be true. Man, Elizabeth, I noticed how you just kind of, that the customer sent you a sign there and you just ran right through it, like running through a yellow light, right? Yep. Let's talk about 
why you should have stopped there and what might have been different if you just stopped there and asked one more question, right? Definitely. And um, I want to go back to what you said on training versus coaching, because that is so um, important. And I want to make sure that everybody captures that. You do need to have training, but training in and of itself is unlikely to change behavior. Because what happens is two things. First of all, when people are in a training environment, they are by the very nature of the training environment outside their day to day. You know, you're bringing them into a different room or they're they're sitting uh, and, and just watching a long presentation. And that's not what they're doing on a day to day basis. And so you're asking them to do two things. You're asking them to translate. How do I apply this to my day to day? And a really good trainer will actually make that um, they'll, they'll, they'll help people with that. They will adjust the training. They will say, you know, this is what you should do day to day. But so often training doesn't do that. So then you're asking salespeople to translate, okay, you gave this concept. I know my sales meetings kind of run like that, but not exactly like that. How do I tweak that concept? Plus, they're, they're going from one environment of the actual training to a different one. And, and they have different pulls on their behavior and habits that they've established. And so if you just do training and don't do coaching, you're literally reducing the, up, the likelihood that people are even going to apply what you train them on. Instead, if you do well, a training and then you do coaching, the coach can help the person figure out, okay, you learn that concept. How, how are you going to apply that to this opportunity? Right. So what what I tell people is there's a reason it's called training and development. Training, mm-hmm. training by itself uh, doesn't move the needle. Um, but it is the knee-jerk reaction for most managers. Definitely. Because figuring out a development plan for somebody is a lot harder than pulling the trigger on a training program, right? Definitely. Um, so it's that, it's those many coaching sessions consistently that will actually change behavior of salespeople. Now, the other thing to consider is um, the, uh, the skill level of your team really also determines how much do you do training and how much do you do coaching. So new, um, New salespeople, salespeople that don't have a very solid skill base, need to have a lot more training than your more tenured salespeople. Your more tenured salespeople need just as much time around development. People think that people think that high-performing salespeople don't want training and coaching. That is not the case. But what they want is different training. Definitely, and they want more deal coaching and less skill training, but in your lower uh, performing salespeople, they need more training than your high performers. So that mix, you have to be willing to shift the mix a little bit based on who you have in your sales organization. Definitely. I've even seen in a lot of our our clients that you'll have some of the top performing salespeople. They're the ones who are most eager to leverage the organization for coaching. They're the ones that are knocking on the CEO's office door and saying, hey, I have this opportunity. What can you do to help me get in here? Um, And they're they're going to their sales manager and saying, uh, you know, I've got this meeting coming up and I just want to talk through it with you. And they're really eager for that 
that because they know that there can be those little changes that they might make in their preparation that could be the difference between winning and losing a million dollar or multi-million dollar deal um, versus when you're when you're more junior you need to learn all kinds of different best practices and skills that you don't have and also you might not have all that many deals in the pipeline to do deal right. coaching on and so it is right. more of an opportunity for that just general training and that's stuff that by the time somebody makes it to a senior level they've already gotten most of that training so they're just they're not in the market for it anymore well and i i also think so part of what i put under the bucket of coaching i would call motivating mm-hmm. and managers should be spending probably 20% of their time motivating their sales organization. Now, when I use that word, people immediately think they have to be a cheerleader. And that's not (laughs) at all what I'm talking about, right? Um, Motivating is about goal setting Mm -hmm. and accountability. So a great manager, part of their um, coaching plan for for their folks in their organization really needs to be about goal setting for the salesperson, helping that person to align those goals to the company goals so they're meaningful, Um, creating an action plan for those goals. What are the KPIs? What What are the activities? Remember I said to you, it's the behavior, the activities that are coachable, not the the, uh, outcomes. And then what is the, what is the, what are the what are the things I'm going to put in place around discipline to get to those goals, to achieve those goals? The one of the biggest challenge, if I've heard this one time, I've heard it a gazillion times from salespeople in every industry. I don't have time for Beatty. Uh-huh. <laughs> Taking care of my clients. I don't have time to do BD. I'm like, nope, you don't have time to not do BD. so um there's a guy on youtube i I wish i could remember his name i'd credit him but he has this concept called deep work ah yes i know what you're talking about but i don't remember his name either but we will include a link to that in the show notes yes and i tell people your business development time needs to be sacred time in your calendar And it doesn't need to be all in huge chunks. It could be an hour on uh, Tuesday morning, an hour and a half on Wednesday afternoon, right? Uh, Probably not on Monday. Monday's not a great day to be calling people. But where are these times in your calendar that are sacred where you're going to do deep work? You're very committed just to business development. Nothing is going to interrupt that time. And... Most of the salespeople that I know and have worked with have a very difficult time creating that sacred space for business development. And so what happens is their pipeline gets full and empty, full and empty, full and empty. We don't have this consistency um, in the pipeline that would help us to be more successful and less stressed, frankly. Right. Definitely. That's so incredibly important. And I love that you pulled out, I heard kind of four different kinds of coaching that you mentioned, and I'm sure there are more, but deal coaching, skill coaching, call coaching, and then that motivating goal setting accountability coaching. And Mm -hmm. I think for managers and leaders who are listening to this to really think about 
what of those kinds of coaching am I already doing? Because you're probably doing at least one of those. And then which one might I not be doing? And um, really think about adding that to your to your um, skill set because each of those is really important. And as you said, people at different stages in their career are going to need different different types of that, different amounts. Um, different people on your team based on their role might need a different mix of those coaching types. But you really need to, as a leader, be able to provide all those different kinds of coaching to your reps. Agreed. All right. So we've been talking a lot about coaching. And when it comes to coaching, you could kind of coach somebody till you're blue in the face, right? Mm -hmm. But if you don't have the right people, if you, if you haven't filled your team with the right kinds of performers, you probably still aren't going to see the results that you're looking for. I know you've done a lot of work on figuring out what makes a high-performing salesperson. So what, how would you define a high-performing salesperson? What are the key things that leaders should be looking for? Well, I don't uh, actually need to define it because we've got research that tells us the difference between high performers and the rest of the the rest of the pack. And there are four qualities that we know create high performing salespeople. Number one, they are hunters. Those folks, as I am finding first firsthand right now are really hard to find Mm -hmm. those that are just really willing to go out there and do what it takes to look for that new business. Secondly, they're consultative. That is a term, Elizabeth, that just has been tossed all around for the last 20 years or so. And so I like to tell people when I use that word, what I mean by that, to be consultative as a salesperson, you have to consult. That's <laughs> obvious. Imagine that. But to consult, you have to have a point of view. Definitely. It's not just listening and asking view, questions. Right. To have a point of view, you have to understand how what you do makes money, saves time, saves resources or whatever for your customer. Most salespeople can't accomplish all those things. So they're not consultative. To be consultative, you know, as a consultant for 20 years, I can tell you that a good consultant is willing to push back to a customer on ideas that don't serve them well, but it's because they know enough to have a point of view. Absolutely. Somebody isn't paying a consultant to just ask some questions and kind of vaguely diagnose. The whole point of hiring a consultant, if we go back to the actual term consultant, is you're going to come in, you're going to figure out what I need, and then you're going to provide it to me. And a lot of times people view the consultant, um, you know, when they when they think about consultative selling as just the question asking part and just the yeah. diagnosing part. And that that's, you can't stop there. You have to then move on to, okay, you know, we've, we've diagnosed what your issue is. We've figured out the problem. We figured out what it's costing you. Um, and then we're going to come in with recommendations that are uniquely tied to your problem, to your situation. And if you can't do that, you're not a consultative salesperson. Well, and I'll give you an example. I was on a call, uh, that last week with a prospect that we're working on, and their first question was about um, why, what's the value of our staffers being W-2 and why is our rate higher than somebody else's? Mm-hmm. 
and I said, did you not just tell me that the, that your second round funding depends on how people receive this new product that you're about to test in the market? And they said, yes. I said, okay. So are the questions you should be asking really around why we're W2 and what our rates are? Or should the question be around what would the people strategy look like that would get us the responses we need to tell this story and get us second round funding? Definitely. Honestly, I think one of the best things that you can do as a true consultative salesperson is help people figure out what questions they should ask. Yes. Help them figure out what are the decision criteria that they should be looking for. Because what we need to understand is most buyers don't know how to buy what it is that we're selling to them. Maybe yes. they've never bought it before. And so they, they don't have anything to compare it to. Maybe they don't make, make purchase decisions of this type very often. And then we're expecting them to ask the right questions. That's not really a fair expectation to put on them. A friend of mine has a relatively new book. Um, her name's Deb Calvert. Deb's mm -hmm. book is called, I think, Stop Selling and Start Leading. And she did a lot of research with some um, uh, researchers out on the West Coast about what customers want from salespeople. And this concept of leading, right, really ties into the conversation we're having right now about being consultative. They're looking for you to help them understand what they should be what they should be asking, what should they be considering. So consultative is the second thing. Hunter, number one, consultative seller, number two, value seller, number three. Can you sell value? If I were to ask a hundred salespeople why they lose a deal, 85% of them or more will tell me they lose on price. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you statistically that about 78% of the time, Elizabeth, when a salesperson loses a deal, it is not price, it is not the competition, it is not the market, it is the way they sold the deal. Absolutely. That prospect might very well have gotten to your competitor and paid exactly as much as you quoted or more. <laughs> right. So when... Um, when we evaluate salespeople, one of the things we want to evaluate is, do they sell on price? Do they sell on value? So um, I'm finishing a, consult a consulting agreement, an engagement right now with a client. And one of the things that the CEO of this company said to me was, Jane, our salespeople discount. I need you to help me to get them to stop discounting. I said, well, they discount for three reasons. Number one, you let them. So that's on you. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> that's not on them. That's on you. Number two, um, it's a skill problem, right? You need to get them some training and coaching. And number three, if I look at the way you talk about your company, you talk about your company very tactically. Mm -hmm. You talk about your company like a commodity. So you're just asking for people to be, beat you up on price when you talk about what you do that way, when you don't speak about the value that you bring to a customer. And back to our conversation about con consultative selling, if you don't know the value that you're bringing to a customer, you can't sell that. Definitely. 
Right. Really understanding what are the problems that you solve for buyers? How do you save them money? How do you um, how do you add value to them in uh, in, you know, sometimes more amorphous, uh, more difficult to measure ways. But you really need to understand, you know, what kind of experience do you create for them? Um, And if you don't know what that is, you might need to go back to your existing customers and ask them some questions. Why did they buy from you? Questioning everything we say about ourselves, right? A lot of people will say um, we're very customer centric. Mm -hmm. We're very customer, you know, I mean, we have all these buzzwords in sales that we use that are total crap. They're meaningless, right? Um, But when I look at things like a capabilities document, a capabilities presentation, and it starts with here's who we are. Here's how many offices we have. Yep, we've Here's been around since this date. <laughs> Here are the resources we have internally. Here's our team. There's nothing customer focused mm-hmm. about that, right? As opposed to, um, thanks for having us. Here are some of the customers we serve. Here are some of the problems that they have. And and then you're starting to be able to get into a conversation. You're already consulting in your capabilities presentation. You're saying to the customer, are these, are any of these issues resonating with you? Are any of these things, things that you struggle with? You see what I'm saying? We have to start questioning everything we profess to be because it's likely that we're not those things right now. We're not consultative. We're not customer focused. We're not selling value. Um, and it, it takes just a, you know, I, I've even said to our own team, if we are incrementally better at the way we talk about ourselves and talk to our customers, we will be exponentially more successful than our competition because they're, um, most sales organizations are quite mediocre. <laughs> Definitely. And it's such a simple difference, but I, I want to emphasize this because this, we, we train this exact concept. Um, if you are looking at your deck and it starts out with, we were founded in 1999 and we are the greatest and we won this award and we do this, we do this, we do this. It's all about you. That's all about you, 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 you. That is not what people care about. People care about how you could help them. And so we have a tool that we use called the Problem Opportunity Matrix, and it, it can turn into a tool called a list of common problems, which is pretty basic. And if you literally just have a slide and say, here are the top 10 problems we solve for customers, that yep. can literally drive an entire first half of a, sale, a selling meeting because you can say, okay, which of these problems do you have? How do you experience that? Um, what you know, what's the impact on different parts of your team? Let's talk about what the cost of that might be. And then you can get into, all right, what are the solutions to that? And you never have to talk about when you were founded or what your CEO's name is or all this other stuff. Honestly, um, people don't cares. care. And they can find it on your website if they really want to look. Right. They don't care. I always say to people, who, who do people like to talk about the most? Me. So why would you start a capabilities presentation, not talking about them, but talking about you? Yeah. Well, that's their least favorite thing. They, they say they want to know about you, but they really don't yeah. want to know about you. What they want to know is what about you makes it better for them. Absolutely. It's why are you meeting with me? What could you do for me? Not really right. who are you. 
Yeah, they don't care who you are. <laughs> you know, don't mean to don't mean to hurt your feelings, honey. But they don't care who you are. Definitely, they don't care about you, right? So, hunter, consultative seller, value seller, and the last thing, and you're going to think I'm Captain Obvious, is qualifying. Do you ask the right questions? And do you listen? Mahan Khalsa wrote a book called "Let's Get Real" or "Let's Not Play." Um, Mahan says if you don't ask great questions, you have nothing to listen to. If you don't listen, you can't ask great questions. And when I say to people, questioning and listening are one of the, the are the among the attributes of high performers. They look at me like I'm an idiot. But when we test salespeople. You would be amazed at how poorly most salespeople qualify. And you know, I've been on coaching uh, calls with salespeople out in the field and had them say to me as we're getting in the car after the meeting, "Jane, what do you think she meant when she said yada yada?" And I'm like, "Dude, what are you asking me for? You were right in that meeting with that customer. Why are you asking me this in the parking lot?" Right. Um, 91% of high performers are great qualifiers. I think 6% of lower performers are great qualifiers. So if you're a manager and you think that this is so basic that you don't need to coach your team on qualifying, then I would ask you to reconsider. Absolutely. I think a lot of people are afraid to look stupid by asking questions. And I think this is where we could really benefit from listening to um, interviewers. I know um, I love the daily podcast uh, from the New York Times with Michael Barbaro. And there's an ongoing joke that he will ask what sometimes would sound like the stupidest question. Um, there was on Twitter just the other day, uh, he, he had been interviewed and somebody mentioned a Shoney's restaurant. And he just said in his very like newscaster sort of a voice, what is a Shoney's? And you know what? He might have known the answer to that, but he knew that a lot of his listeners wouldn't know the answer. And so he asked the question and a prospect is not going to judge you if you need to ask a clarifying question in order to be more consultative, in order to qualify them. Now, if you're asking a bunch of really stupid questions that show you didn't do your research, they might judge you. And so you, you don't want to come in and just be like, what is your business? I don't know anything. You know, that that's a sign that you didn't, you didn't do your prep. But if you've done enough research and they're mentioning a term that you're not familiar with, it's perfectly okay to ask them, what's that term? That might be an internal term that they use that's not standard. Um, or it might just be something you haven't heard before and they'll share it. And now you've learned something and that's never a bad thing to know. You can't, you know, you don't want to send an email afterwards. There's something that you mentioned in the meeting that I didn't understand. You know, be bold. Take that. Take the time to ask the question. Um, it's 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 going to work out. It'll be fine. Well, in all the years I've been selling, I've never once had a client say to me, "Well, that was a stupid question." Definitely, people are polite enough. Honestly, even yeah. if they thought it, they wouldn't say it. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, one of the things uh, that I tell salespeople is. The most important question you ask is the next question. We don't ask enough questions. We make a lot of assumptions about what clients mean by what they say. And that's why our proposals half the time end up being guessing documents um, more than anything else, because we didn't do the work of asking that next question, that redirection question to get clarity around what they meant. I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. 
the client says, when will you get back to me? Most people, most salespeople assume that means the client's in a hurry. So they unnecessarily mm-hmm. tax their internal resources because they didn't want to say, great question. Is there a time frame I need to be aware of? Or is there some urgency I need to be aware of? Um, and I've had clients say to me, yeah, well, no, it's the opposite, Jane. I'm going on vacation for two weeks. And if you got it to me now, it would just sit on my desk for two weeks. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want my proposal on somebody's desk aging for two weeks, right? And at the bottom of the pile when they get back. So um, it's that next question that is the important question, that clarifying question, the, the, the redirect question. Absolutely. Um, And even to say, um, you know, exactly like you said, um, when they ask, you know, when can you get me a proposal to say, can you tell me um, what your process is, what your next steps are? I want to make sure that I'm presenting you the right information. And to be able to then talk about their decision process and who would be the next people that might be involved in the next meeting. And again, if we're just jumping on they answer one question or they give us one thing and we just try to charge forward like we know everything from there. You could be charging off in the very wrong direction, whether it's committing to something that's going to strain your organization because you you overcommitted to an early date or whether it's, um, like you said, a proposal that's guesswork. And it's all about um, just... You should be a sponge if you're selling to, to go in there and your goal is just learn as absolute most as possible um, and to come out of that meeting just with, with just an in-depth knowledge of, of exactly what it is that they're, that they're concerned about and struggling with. Um, and you'll never be in trouble from knowing too much about your prospect. And you'll never be in trouble for asking a smart question. So uh, I was in with a... a client sales team at one point with um, a a big company. And so there were a bunch of people in a U shape around the room and we were in the middle. And one of the people at the end of the presentation said, how are we going to know that you're the best company to work with? And the salesperson started just what I call show up and throw up, Uh you know, about all the great qualities of the company. And I said, Mark, stop a second. You know, that's a great question, John. How will you know that we're the best? What is your criteria for best? Definitely. And he started telling us what, you know, I mean. Yeah, how do you measure success? Why would I assume that I know, right, that I'm going to know what makes us the best? You tell me what would make us the best fit for you. Uh, and they knew that. They know the answer to that question. Absolutely. So, so if we look at high performers when we're when we're interviewing, when we're assessing, we're looking for that hunter. We're looking for somebody that's consultative. We're looking for a value seller. We're looking for somebody who can qualify and ask that next question and that next smart question. And then there would be uh, there are actually twenty things I look for, but I'll give you four more that I think are really important. One is. Does the salesperson have too much of a need to be liked? Mm -hmm. If I have a need for you to be my buddy, I'm not a good salesperson because I'm not going to push back. I'm going to sit too far on the client side of the table and I'm probably giving away margin. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because it's too important that the client like me. Whereas I tell salespeople, don't go, don't go for like, go for trust. Absolutely. If your client trusts you, 
they will probably like you. If you're shooting for being liked, you're sitting too far on the client side of the table. Definitely. You're not there to be a personal friend. Right? Because you're not going to push back if you need to be liked. Yeah. The second thing is I test for that money tolerance. What's a high, what's a big number for that salesperson? Mm -hmm. Where are they going to start having a hard time talking about money? Money has such a weird emotional thing attached to it. I, I, after all this time, I still don't have it figured out. To me, money is one more objective that a client has to meet like any other objective. Mm-hmm. But for most salespeople, there's some emotional baggage uh, that comes with money. And for most clients as well, there's this weird money vibe. So I test where's their threshold for being able to talk about money. Um, the third thing is we call it emotional control, Elizabeth, but it's really not about your emotions. Like, do you get angry? It's more like when, when the crap hits the fan and three decision makers show up in a meeting that you didn't know anything about who have completely different criteria from what you were prepared for. Are you able to manage your emotions? Are you able to adjust in a situation like that? Or do you just completely fall apart? Yeah. Kind of stress tolerance. (laughs) And then the last one is what is their responsibility quotient? In other words, I want to see a salesperson who takes responsibility for his success or failure. So I always in an interview ask the question, Elizabeth, when you lose a deal, tell me why you usually lose. Now, I'm going to tell you that 85% of the time they're going to say price Mm -hmm. um, or our products suck or whatever. And at that point, I'm going to say, okay, I'm in a good mood today. So I'm going to give you a buy on that that answer. (laughs) Because I'm going to tell you that you're not losing because of price and you're not losing because your products suck. So price take price off the table. When you lose a sale, why do you usually lose? A high performing salesperson is going to have an answer for that. They're going to say something like, you know what, Jane, I lose when I talk too much Uh or I lose when I try too hard to be the client's friend. A high performing salesperson is going to know they'll have enough self-awareness to be able to tell you where their opportunities for improvement are. A low performing salesperson, a person who's interviewing really well, but you're going to absolutely regret hiring them is going to continue to argue with you that they lose on price. That is not a coachable person. That is not a person who's going to accept responsibility for their success or failure. They'll have every reason in the book why they lost a deal, but it will never be them. And you will be replacing that person in under a year. Definitely. Um, just that, like you said, self-awareness, I I think those four criteria really match up with the, with the other four that you shared. So really eight criteria of a high performing salesperson, but all of those, you know, just to touch on them too quickly, we've seen that where the, the salesperson feels like they're the one who needs to do all the advocating for their client. They want to be their friend. Um, and they're not serving the organization that they actually work for, or, um, you know, they, they feel like their product is too expensive. They're not comfortable talking about money 
they they kind of undercut themselves because they're they're leery about numbers. Um, they they get too caught up in things, too emotional, or or they lack that self awareness. All of those are, are big warning flags. And if you can identify that before <laughs> um, before you run into trouble, you're really going to be um, saving yourself from what could what could be a really difficult situation. And a lot of this is just to a certain extent kind of emotional maturity and professionalism. And um, there's really something to be said for for making sure that you're not hiring people who are going to um, to just get caught up in, in things and um, not be able to handle difficult situations. And I think that one of the most important things when it comes to sales is sales is a tough job. And you have to be able to hear no. You have to be able to um, think on your feet. You have to be able to walk into that meeting where you thought you'd be meeting with one person and you're meeting with five people or 12 people. <laughs> and... Um, the more able you are to to handle all of that with maturity and um, and and taking responsibility for it, the more successful you can be. So, excellent criteria. Thank you. All right, Jane. Um, one other thing that I wanted to ask about because um, I know you have a you have a great perspective on this as a woman in sales leadership. Um, what are your thoughts on the unique perspective that? that women might have or, or unique um, kind of importance or, or, or challenges that women might face in sales and sales leadership? Yeah, so I speak on that a lot, actually. And I, I like to start by telling people, um, I'm not an HR person, so I'm a salesperson. So I really, um, I don't say I'm not interested, but filling your quota of women is not something I'm that interested in. Mm -hmm. um, when I talk to leaders about why they should have women in their sales organization, I show them the data that shows that women outperform men in sales uh, consistently. And in fact, women in sales leadership outperform men in sales leadership consistently. So the reason to have women in your sales organization is to make more money, <laughs> uh, not to check your quota box. Cause I, I, you know, that's not my thing. I don't have, I don't have time for that in my life. Right. Uh, I'm in charge of showing revenue. Um, if you ask me why that is Elizabeth, I don't, I don't have the data to support that. I could tell you anecdotally why I think it is, but um, I will just tell you that the statistics show that women are the majority of high-performing salespeople. So if we think back to those, to those qualities that we were looking for, uh, now I do see women fall down a lot in that friendship category, mm -hmm. right? try to be relational sellers. And I don't think relationship selling is dead. It is different though. We don't, we don't win a deal because um, our kids go to the same school or we play golf together. Yep. Um, we, the relationship is really built around that consultative, um, uh, that, you know, that yin and yang that gets created by us meeting their needs in a way that benefits them. Right? Definitely. You know my so, problems. You you understand yeah, what I'm dealing with. It's important for um, organizations to consider 
actively recruiting women in sales and actively recruiting women sales leaders. And, you know, the other thing I'll, I'll just say is there are, there are some reasons that women are not in sales leadership that have to do with women that are not, you know, I, I, I get invited frequently into these women's groups and, um, I'm a little jaded by them because, it, you know, as I was coming up in sales, the majority of these groups were really about how, you know, the man's keeping me down and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I, I don't really have time for that. Um, today, what I would say is where women hold themselves back is they don't ask for these roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we look at the data, what we see is that a lot of women, probably I think 72% of women talk to their boss about a promotion, but it's in the 30 or 40 percentile range of women who actually ask for a promotion. Take that next step to close the deal, right? We're selling great in the field, but we're not selling ourselves well. And one of the things that that seems to be a consistent thing is that women tend to wait to go after a job until they have met mm-hmm. all of the criteria. This is why we don't have a lot of women. The stats are the same for women running for office, interestingly enough. Yep. Women see that job description, they're like, yeah, I don't, I don't have that one thing. Whereas men will have maybe 40% of the attributes and go, yeah, that I'm good. I'll learn the rest on the job. <laughs> Right. And good for them. That's why they're in these roles. Yep. That's what women need to do more of. Um, so not waiting to be perfect, being willing to ask for that job, getting serious about cultivating your network mm-hmm. and cultivating a network where you continue to add value in your network, not just where it's a network of people who I could ask for things. Right. And that's something women are good at wanting to help other people to succeed. And so um, I find that as you continue to pay into that network, it becomes one of your best assets in your career. So if you're a young woman in sales, start doing that now. Start figuring out how to build out your network and find ways to add value to the people in your network. Um and figure out the people that you want to emulate, the people that you want to be, where are those people hanging out? Uh, think about, you know, think about sales leaders. They're not at networking meetings. Mm-hmm. This, this chief sales officer of your company is not going to networking meetings. Where, where are they going? They're probably on boards. They're probably doing things in the community. They're probably serving in your industry. Um, on boards and in other in other associations inside your your particular industry, and if you're young, you're probably not at a place where you can get on a board. But you sure as heck can get in there and start getting in front of those people and uh, donating your time to those organizations. So you have to start thinking strategically about your career, and if you're in a big company start networking outside of your company. You know, I've worked with some huge organizations and when I go on LinkedIn for these folks, all the people they know are in their own organization. Yep. That's 
that's not great for your career, right? Definitely. Uh, Get outside your little nest and start to make friends across industries and in your competitor. Absolutely. It's, um, I had a really great conversation with somebody on the show, um, a few weeks ago and I will look up who that was because it is completely escaping my mind at the moment. I apologize, but that'll be in the show notes. And really we can't afford to think about competitors, um, like competitors anymore. And, um, what it it was Brian Wright. Um, I remember all the way back in November 4th. So I will include a link to that in the show notes, but, um, you need to be thinking about people in your space as collaborators and as, um, people that you can share best practices with. If you're, if you're approaching competitors, um, from a a space of, of fear and, and worry that they're going to be taking a step ahead of you, um, that's, that's not a good mindset to take. Instead, thinking about what you can learn, uh, especially if you're young in your career, you're going to be in that industry for a while, potentially. You're probably not going to stay at your job for 30 years anymore. People don't do that as much. And so you might, working, you might be working for that competitor in a few years, or you might be working for a company that doesn't exist yet, and you're going to have some people from your current job and some people from competitors and people who are new to your space. Um, and so building that network and maintaining it over time is so incredibly important. Such great advice, Jane. Yeah, your most powerful asset in your career, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Definitely. All right. I'm looking at the clock, and we've gone a little bit longer than intended. Do you have a couple more minutes for more questions? Uh, sure. Okay, perfect. Um, you've already recommended a couple of books. You recommended Deb Calvert's book. She's actually a previous guest on the show. So that was great. Her book is Stop Selling and Start Leading. And you mentioned Mahan Khalsa, Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play. But do you have any other books that you would recommend to our listeners? Um, yes, I happen to know a lot of great authors and think and think they write wonderful stuff. And now I'm going from memory because as I told you, I'm in my home office today and all my books are at the office. Um, <laughs> James Muir, M-U-I-R. James wrote a fairly recent book. I think it was out this year. Um, James is a student of Mahan, and the book is about the most important question or something like that. Okay. We'll we'll find it and put it in the show notes. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful book. I go back... um, it's a, it's the book that I wish I had written. <laughs> That's always a good sign. Uh, yeah, and much like Deb's, I think Deb's is a great is a great book. Um, other people that you should read if you've never read anything, if you're especially if you're a woman, if you've never read anything by Jill Conrad. Oh, she's great. Jill's Jill's great lady and great sales great sales leader. Um, if you haven't read, uh, I have two people right now that are writing books of, that have written books about um, selling from the heart or using your heart in selling, which I really like. One is Larry Levine has a, I think it's fairly new. The other person is Sherry Levitin, wrote a wrote a similar book to that. Uh, if you're a sales manager, there's a book by a guy named Michael. Uh, Bungie Steinier, he's British, and I butcher his name every time. (laughs) Somebody's going to hear me do that. And uh, the book is called The Coaching Habit. And uh, I I like stuff to be simple. It's six simple questions that'll make you a better coach. It's not sales specific. 
but it's all about that concept about coaching and not telling. Yeah. I mean, I go on for days. I'm a prolific reader, Elizabeth. So, um, in fact, I did a YouTube video about a half a dozen books that I liked. Probably I just told you most of them, but you might check that video out too for for what I was reading at the time. Definitely. We will look that up and we will include a link. Uh, we'll, we'll embed that video in the show notes as well. If people want to want to check that out. I, um, I'm a prolific reader myself. I love to read and selfishly, I use um, this question as uh, to add to my library of books that I need to read. <laughs> so, <laughs> some great suggestions here, some that I've read and others that I haven't. Um, so looking forward to that. All right, Jane, here at Let's Talk Sales, we are focused on providing actionable best practices that our listeners can apply to their lives. So do you have an actionable tip that you'd recommend for listeners today? Oh, I'll bet you asked me that ahead of time and I was supposed to be prepared. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, an actionable tip, I would say right now, if you, uh, if your LinkedIn profile is anemic, if it reads like a resume and not like um, not like a, not about something that you do for the customer or a problem that you solve, if you have fewer than 500 connections on your LinkedIn, then you need to get serious this week about doing a better job of being connected on LinkedIn. Love that. And once you do that, then you can start to figure out how to leverage it well as a salesperson. You know, my practice that I just closed, um, in 20 years, every single piece of business I got was a referral. Wow. And so referrals are the absolute best way to get business. You have to do a lot less selling. You get to do a lot more problem solving earlier. Um, And so creating that network for yourself where you are paying into that network for people and getting yourself to a point where you can start asking for introductions to the right kinds of clients, that will help your sales career quite a bit. Absolutely. I'm actually literally leaving from here today uh, to do a uh, LinkedIn training with a client. (laughs) And it is amazing how many people as a LinkedIn have basically a resume and these are people in sales and literally a prospect that you reach out to, especially one that you reach out to over LinkedIn. The first thing they're going to do is click through to your profile. (laughs) And if it's not good, you are doing yourself such a disservice. So incredibly important. All right, Jane, this has been so much fun. I've learned a lot today and I'm sure our listeners have as well. If you want people to learn more about you and your work, where should they go? Well, janegentry.com is still up. You can always, um, I, I update LinkedIn actually more than I update the website. Mm -hmm. There, um, are some videos on YouTube. You're welcome to, uh, if you want to go check those out. Uh, Twitter is Jane Gentry. I mean, Jane Gentry pretty much can get me anywhere. And if you're interested in what fusion does, and uh, our other agents, staffing agency, you can go to fusioneventstaffing.com or jwilliamsagency.com. Those are both our companies. So happy to, happy to uh, answer any questions or engage in any way with your listeners that would add value to their world. 
All right. Um, we will include a link, links to all of those places in the show notes so people can get in touch with you. Um, as I'm sure everybody that's listening has learned over this conversation, Jane is a source of a lot of wisdom and um, whatever it is that you're looking for, she, she would probably be a good resource. So thank you so much, Jane, for joining me today. My pleasure. Great being with you, Elizabeth. All right. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into today's show. You can find those notes and resources that we've been talking about in the show notes at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 213. Be sure to tune in this Friday for our weekly inspiration episode where Joe is going to be sharing a great quote that is sure to inspire you. We are entering that lovely holiday season. And so after Friday's episode, Let's Talk Sales is going to be on a very brief hiatus until January when we're going to be back on our typical schedule. So don't worry if you don't see us in your feed. We'll be back in the new year. We wish you a very, very happy holiday season, and we'll talk to you again next year. As a reminder, if you have any feedback for us, topics, or questions you'd like us to address, you can reach us at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. If you're enjoying the show, please recommend us to a friend and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you find your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a rating or a review. This will help more people find the show, and it lets us know what's working and where we have room to improve. Remember to follow us on Twitter at let's underscore talk underscore sales. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success and is produced by Ariana Miskell, Laura Marchoff, and me, Elizabeth Frederick. Happy selling!